Hi, I'm Tom Johnson. I'm at the Intelligent Content Conference, and I'm talking with Toby Crabtree. Uh, Toby, can you tell us a little bit, what are you presenting on, and uh, what spurred your interest in, in this topic? Absolutely. So um, I'm presenting on Ivy, Ask Ivy. It's Intel's virtual HR agent. It's a new technology where a virtual agent, some people have gone out, and you see it on a, an airline website where it's a virtual agent that you're able to go in and ask questions, and, um, and then she's going to respond back he or she's going to respond back. And so we developed something like that internally for our, our employees for HR content. And part of the reason why I wanted to come here to this conference is to develop more of an understanding about overall content strategy, how we can develop that using our virtual agent as well as tying into the different channels that we have. So the concept of a virtual agent is kind of new to a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us an example? Like you mentioned an airline. Can it walk us through what happens? Uh, something pops up on the screen. What does it say? What is, how does it respond? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of times, like I said, on a, an airline website. So there's a number of airlines where you go out. And some of them have it where it pops up as you're looking for a flight. And it, it may pop up and say, where are you looking to fly to? Or how can I help you today? And you type in a question and it's able to give a response. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes people will go out there and they're able to program them live time. Like when the Icelandic volcano hit, uh, they were able to answer over 10,000 questions in a day based on what was happening with that event. Mm -hmm. So it, it really allows a lot of scalability. It specifically works for more repeatable first line questions. Uh, and that's really the ideal sweet spot that it works in. So why is it that people would want to interact with a virtual agent rather than just typing a question into a, a knowledge base? You know, what's what is special about this like live this sense of a live person? Yeah, so there's uh, one is it is that sense of a live person. And so instead of just having lots of content coming back where you're searching through trying to find the right answer, the virtual agent one is often going to speak in a tone like a human being would speak in. So there's that virtual intel agent um, intelligent content piece of it. Uh, and really it's it's that connection that you can make to the virtual agent. They, If it's programmed correctly, it should give you an answer that's more like someone speaking to you in language that you can understand, getting you straight to the content that you need to access hmm. versus having to sift through um, a search result that could get bring you back tens, thousands of hmm. pages sometimes. Well, what would you say is the most like difficult issue or challenge you face in trying to configure this sort of virtual experience? Great question. I, I would say the biggest challenge is figuring out where to start and how deep you need to go. And so there's a lot of content that you can build out. Ours in particular is around HR topics for our employees. HR is very expansive. And so trying to find the right level of information that employees or your customers, whomever it is, that they want to access, mm -hmm. getting that right um, level of content to get them interested, to get them in there so that you can also get more information about where to continue to build. So it, a lot of it is that starting point, figuring out how deep you need to make it, mm -hmm. how it's going to be relatable to the, em the employees or the customers, and then expanding from there. And a lot of it is about iteration. You mm -hmm. put it out there, you get information, you get feedback, you find out what's working, what's not, you change it, and you put it out there again. It's a continual cycle. Now, it seems like programming this kind of experience would be expensive, involve a team of programmers, custom built things. What sort of scenario does this fit? Is this only for major airlines who have a couple million to spend on this? Or how, like, what's the extent of 
applicability for this solution? I, it depends a bit on what the person is looking to do or the company is looking to do. So you're right, it can be expensive. There are, um, if you are looking for something where you can deploy it pretty easily, there are some agents that you can copy over mm. what they have and use some of that, what they call natural language, the way that it, the agent is able to understand that information. So there are some things that you can copy over. We were in a little different situation because it is so unique and it was the first of its kind. So we had nothing mm. to copy over, but ideally what you're looking for is that sweet spot of uh, maybe a lot of uh, online content and you're looking to help navigate if you have a lot of repeatable questions that have the same answer uh, that are going to live agents you can get a lot of savings saving that time from going to a live person to that virtual agent and then your live agents your actual people they're helping they're there to help with more complex questions so that's really the sweet spot you want to look for is how many repeatable questions do you have whether it's IT whether it's customer support whether it's customer service for um, for any type of clothing line, those types of things, that's kind of your sweet spot that you want to be looking for. Did, did you ever compare uh, like a before and after scenario? Like this was before we implemented the live agent, we had you know tons of frustrated users or whatever, and this is after. Um, yes, we've been looking at that. It hasn't been live for uh, that long. We've actually just hit our year mark. So okay. it's been, it's pretty new and we're still developing and expanding. We're following that iterative cycle. So figuring out what type of content we need to bring in and expand. So there's a lot of work that we've done that is something we're constantly looking at to say, okay, what is that user experience? Mm -hmm. How are they feeling? We have done a couple of user experience tests in time where we've seen that um, improvement over the experience, made changes to the agent based on that, the content based on that, um, but that it is still a work in progress since it is so new. If somebody wants to find out more information about like virtual agents, what should they search for or what resources would you guide them to? Uh, you could just do a search for intelligent virtual agent. Uh, that would be your first start. That's how it's known or an IVA is typically okay. how it's known out there. Um, that, that would be your first spot. It is a smaller network and it's a smaller industry. And so once you get out there and get connected, you can start to find those different pieces. Um, I certainly would be happy to talk to anybody that was interested as well in, in helping okay. guide them to some different resources. Um, it is a little bit of a niche industry right now, and so it's a little bit smaller. It's, it's once you get out there and get connected, it's pretty easy to get some, okay. some additional information. Well, thanks, Toby. Is there anything else you wanted to say? Any question I didn't ask that you wanted to answer? Um, I, you know, I don't think so. I think you asked a lot of great questions. It really was a, um, it's a, a great innovative technology that I'm hoping people will okay. start to look at more and look at the uses for it. I think within the, the realm of content strategy, there's a lot of ways to apply it and there's a lot of great uses and I'm excited to see this technology grow as more people come in and the capability grow. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot of fun and I encourage anybody that's interested in it and thinks they might have an avenue for it to look into it. All right, well, thanks, Toby. Thank you. Hi, we're at the Intelligent Content Conference in San Jose. I'm talking with Val Swisher of Content Rules. And uh, Val, tell me, what are you presenting on here and what spurred your interest in the topic? So today I'm going to be presenting on something that is uh, my passion. And that is the work that I do with Translators Without Borders. So I'm a board member for this organization. We are the largest collection of people doing humanitarian translation in the world. And 
and uh, I've been involved with a really super project called Wiki Project Medicine and the project is essentially taking the 100 most frequently accessed medical articles from Wikipedia, making them more accurate, hmm. simplifying the English, translating them into 100 languages, and then providing accessibility to people in rural villages in third world countries. Wow, I totally didn't know that. <laughs> That's, I didn't know you were involved in I didn't even know there was an effort to do this. So can you give me an example, like uh, maybe an article on polio gets translated or what? So, um, sure, there, there are a number of examples. Um, let me give you an example of uh, that will show you why we're doing this. So okay. there's um, the most frequent killer of children under age five in developing countries is diarrhea. Okay. And people in developing countries who don't have access to medi to uh, any information actually believe you should withhold liquids. Mm. And we met a family that had lost their child from this. And this is 100% preventable. And they had a kit in their home with all of the, the uh, materials that they needed. I mean, it's sugar, salt, water. It, it's very simple. Mm. But they couldn't read the instructions. Mm. And because they couldn't read the instructions, their child died. Wow. And that's that's ha why I wake up in the morning. That is why I do what I do. And yes, we do this for customers and, you know, in my corporate life. Um, but to be able to extend that to save even one child from something that is completely preventable in, in terms of, you know, in terms of losing life, um, that's really what's important. So in the Wikipedia project, um, some of the articles that we worked on, they're pretty common articles, uh, also appropriate for third world, so things like um, dengue fever, gastroenteritis, common cold, gout, a bunch of them. Um, one of the fascinating developments that I'll also be talking about later is that in order to do a good job simplifying the English, which is really what I'm responsible for, the English simplification program, we've created the world's largest database of simplified English medical terminology. Because myocardial infarction is not translatable into Swahili. Heart attack is not translatable into anything. So, right? Heart attack Heart attack yeah. would mean nothing in Swahili. Attack of the heart. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. You know, and, and you think someone's attacking your heart. So um, we've developed this uh, terminology database that will be open sourced. And there are over 10,000 terms in it. And um, hmm. that's probably the biggest accomplishment we, you know, my team has had um, since starting. You know. how, how do you get translators to volunteer to translate these different articles? I mean, I imagine they're pretty technical, or at least, I mean, it's not something somebody does in five minutes of spare time. That's um, a good question. You know, what's amazing, whether it's the translators or my English editors, people really want to help. They really want to help. I have people who, I guarantee after today's talk, will come over to me and say, how can I help? How can, how can I put these skills that I've been honing in my professional life to work in a humanitarian way? And we have thousands of translators who do 
I don't even know how many languages we do, quite frankly. I mean, hundreds of languages. And um, we have a technology base so that uh, an article that needs to be translated into certain languages is sort of put out on the platform and then translators can come and grab it for their language and then put it back on the platform. So um, it's not as hard as you might think. Uh, we do have trouble getting some of the some of the lesser known languages. We had a lot of trouble getting Swahili, for example, and we ended up opening a center in Kenya and training translators to do this work because it's it's a critical problem in Kenya. How, how do you manage all your volunteers? <laughs> well, I mean, technically, do you have a system? I assume they're using the media, media wiki platform to to publish the translations, right? It's, if this is a Wikipedia effort. So, um, so Translators Without Borders, we work on hundreds of projects, and this oh. Wikipedia project happens to be a big one, but okay. it's just one of many. So in the Wikipedia project, um, the articles themselves are posted by volunteer Wikipedians. Mm. So we have people from the Wikipedia community who will take our translated articles and post them to the various Wikipedia sites that are multilingual. Um, the, the general flow in terms of managing all of this work is done by an amazing core team that's all volunteer. Uh, there are people who spend all day just volunteering and working on this. There is one company in particular, ProZ, that has donated our um, workspace platform. It's it's a tech it's a technology tool for translation, very popular in the translation field. Uh, and actually, there are two Prozi employees who work on uh, Translators Without Borders stuff. Um, I think full time, hmm. and, and Prozi donates them as well. So uh, a lot of forms for sign up, things like that, and then this big system for managing the actual translation and then depending upon where it goes after, maybe we post it to Wikipedia, maybe we send it to whatever humanitarian organization asked us to do the translation to start with. Mm. How do you know if you're making an impact? How do you know if all of these translated articles are affecting the health and yeah, the people? That, that's a good question. We actually recently heard that of two people who um, were saved, who, whose lives were who are still alive yeah. because they were able to find the information in their language. We just heard this, and this was from Kenya. Um, we Sometimes we're in touch with the humanitarian organizations that we're working with, and they can tell us, and they can have statistics. Um, and frankly, that's usually what happens, is we're translating something for some other NGO, and they will report back to us the effect that our translations had. In the Wikipedia uh, project, it's going to be harder to, to measure because there's no intermediate NGO. So it's really... Wikipedia, um, I think we'll measure a certain amount of success by how much community we can drive around the articles. Mm. So can we actually create a community in Kenya to manage the Swahili content and keep that content up to date? Okay. So 
Not a, not a one-to-one, but that's, that's I think, how we'll do it with Wikipedia. If uh, somebody wanted to get involved or just find out more information, do they just search for Translation Without Borders, or what, what, what resources do you point them to? So um, our website is translatorswithoutborders.org, and on our website there's a donate page, donate button, so you can always use funding, always. Um, and some people have corporate matching, and we really appreciate those donations because they're, they're doubled. Uh, there's sign-ups for different types of volunteering. If you're a translator, there's a sign-up for that. If you want to volunteer in some other capacity, there's a sign-up for that. So, um, you know, uh, others. we have a Twitter account, we have Facebook, but most of our interaction happens on our website. And we definitely need help, and we definitely need money, and everybody's welcome. All right, well, thank you very much, Val. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, Tom. Thanks. So I'm Tom Johnson at Intelligent Content 2014. I'm talking with Nas Urbina. Uh, Nas, can you tell us a little bit about what you're presenting on, the title, and what kind of uh, spurred your interest in the topic? Right, okay, I'm talking about uh, the biological imperative for intelligent content. So what is the biological imperative for intelligent content? I'm basically saying that um, the brain's natural uh, mechanisms and the reward system in our brain is better served by intelligent content than traditional content. Um, how did I get there? I have been casually interested in the area for a few years and I was reading more books and then I started to get serious about it about two years ago and I did quite extensive research and I actually interviewed um, a clinical psychologist and psychobiologist and I had them review my, my theories and my presentation draft. Um, basically I think that it has to do with uh, behavior. If we're going to influence users, if we're going to influence behavior, we should understand how the users work. And behavior starts and ends in the brain. So all communication starts and ends in the brain. So I thought that that's we should go down you know, to the bare essentials, come back down to the, like, the physics, the fundamental theories of how we communicate, and then build up again. Hmm. Because uh, I've seen so many times in this industry where people are getting sideswiped by things. They didn't see mobile coming. They didn't see what the implications of multi-channel were. They, they're not ready for, for wearable technologies. They're not ready for augmented reality. Because they keep focusing, they keep focusing on what they're doing and not really putting themselves in the user's position and saying, okay, if the user's in this situation, then what's the natural next step? And anticipating what's coming mm -hmm. next. And I think if we look at the science and we look at the, the deep user experience, the fundamental user experiences for everyone, then we can start to be proactive and not reactive. So you talked about the reward center in the brain as being yes. kind of fundamental and you're trying to like connect behaviors with the rewards. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? This is interesting because I work in now a, a gamification company and oh, it's yes. constantly yeah. like uh, talking about these subjects. Yes. So what is the reward center? What triggers so um, we have in our brain we have the, the limbic system uh, and part of which is the, the amygdala and I didn't want to get too technical I don't know how technical <laughs> you want me to get in terms of brain science here but um, we have the what do we remember things we remember things uh, with a combination of parts of the brain and uh, if we activate uh, our, our emotions when we're learning we will actually learn differently you, it's like you get a harder or stronger right 
to long-term memory if that's com if that's combined with an emotional reaction. So things like in gamification, when you get an emotional burst with the learning activity, you will get a, a harder and deeper uh, carved memory into mm. the long-term memory. But it seems like usually the emotion that people get when they're trying to learn something difficult mm -hmm. is not like an endorphin rush. It's frustration, yes. yes. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I'm talking about in my presentation, is that uh, there's, there's a, a ladder from individual experiences up to, which is uh, eventually a model in the mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I talk about beyond model and how model com becomes identity. But um, if we're just talking about learning the new thing, from experience to model, there's several steps. Mm -hmm. And there, it's like the reverse of mountain climbing. Instead of being easy at the beginning and hard at the end, it's actually hard at the beginning and easy at the end. Oh. So there's learning inertia. Hmm. If you have a truly new thing and you're climbing a new mountain, you're discouraged. You're physically discouraged mm. from at the beginning. But then there's a big payoff at the end. And then if anything comes in, if it can be linked to an existing model that you already have in the brain, you'll get a re you'll get an easier re reward for adding to and improving existing models. How, how do you um, implement like a feedback loop to the user so that they start to feel good about what they're learning, or they have some kind of feedback that's 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 I don't know factoring into this reward center or this behavior. Well, if you're working for a gamification company, you probably answer that right. better than I, I mean, would these days. <laughs> obviously, but I mean, so, in, in terms of documentation. So, uh, in terms of documentation, I, I I still think it's quite situational. Okay. What are you documenting? If you're documenting something where you're talking about embedded help, where you have um, help that's being used while the user is doing the task, you have different opportunities than if you're talking about learning materials where the learning process is very divorced from the doing process. So I don't think I could give a general answer to that, like okay. how you do it. Um, I think there's several strategies that you can employ. However, what I'm trying to talk about in my talk and what I'm generalizing is that it benefits us to really learn how the mind works because that enables empathy. Hmm. That enables you to not just kind of think about me as the user, but really put yourself in my position so that you can then uh, take yourself on that journey in a virtual reality projection of sympathizing with me, empathizing with me, and then, and then uh, design better, optimize better for my needs. This is cool. This, you're like merging neuroscience with uh, the practice of documentation. Exactly, kind, yeah. Right? In fact, I, I went all the way to the beginning. I In my research, I consider it to be a continuum. I went from like uh, particle physics and quantum mechanics to the development of, of, of uh, molecu molecules and how molecules become cells, how cells mm -hmm. become life, like all the way um, up the complexity chain and said, if we got um, simple things, how do they learn? And then us, as complicated things, how do we learn? And what is awesome about all of it is it's all reducible down to very beautiful, very elegant, uh, simple formulas. Mm. All our complexity is based on um, simple reactions. This is a good thing, that's a bad thing. I'm going to do that again, I'm not going to do that again. Mm. <laughs> and all the all it, it mirrors code. Can you give any kind of examples of this in action? Like something where, I don't know, something that makes a little more concrete. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm getting quite uh, out there a little bit. Um, what's my best example? An example that would relate it back to, for example, something like documentation or just an example Anything. of... Anything. Any kind of content, whatever. Any kind of content. So um, I'm telling people to see the user 
see through the user's eyes. Mm. And I talked in, I've talked in some of my other presentations, not in this one, about what I call four-dimensional content. Content that has uh, the length and width of the, of the content bit, but also depth and a time aspect. Mm. Think about where the user is going to be in their real-life human journey when your content gets presented. Um, and I'm going to be telling a story in my presentation about Delta Airlines, where um, I had a good experience on Delta. So I had a brand-changing experience, awesome yeah. customer service experience on Delta, exceptional. So much so that I went, I wanted to bother to give them positive feedback. I took the names of the of the customer, of the, the air crew and the, and the plane and stuff. And then I got off the plane and I went on the site and I'm looking for the feedback place. And they created a, a comment slash complaint form hmm. as one form. <laughs> and they're capturing like 40 form fields where you were what flight where you're flying for I'm like okay I want to give you a compliment but I don't want to give it that much yeah um, and it didn't work on a phone hmm. and so you've made a non-responsive uh, page when the, the time I'm gonna comment on an airline is when I have that little window between when I step off a plane I get net again hmm. and I'm gonna get through immigration and get my bag that's your window yeah you haven't thought about my real-life experience because you haven't you haven't put yourself in my position. You've looked at me as a demographic, and you've mapped you've mapped what your use case said, and you've made sure that everything was ticked off on the website. There's a form mm -hmm. for that. There's a form for that. There's page for this. There's content for everything, but you didn't put it into real human terms, and therefore you did not optimize it for the real situation. Okay. So that's what I'm trying to get people to do: is come back to our universal qualities as, as people. What do we all share? Hmm. and then apply that to every communication opportunity. If people want to learn more about kind of just this uh, kind of field, this topic, what would you suggest they search for or look at? Oof. Um, <laughs> as I said, I went broad with this. Yeah. Um, I would recommend one book above all others uh, that I've read that looks at how we think. Mm -hmm. And that's called Thinking Fast and okay. Thinking Fast and Slow. Okay, by Daniel Kahneman. Okay, and that is, he is the founder of behavioral economics. All right, behavioral economics is to economics as I think holistic content strategy and omnichannel content strategy is to previous forms of communication. Before. Economists thought that we were rational creatures, that we approached everything with a logical um, system and that if we were provided all the data, we would take the best uh, solution for our interests. Mm -hmm. The example they give is mortgages. How much should you uh, take on as, as your mortgage payment? Right. How um, much? 40% of your income. 30% yeah. of your yeah. income. Yeah. <laughs> That's the maximum recommended. Yeah. So people don't. Look at their look at their spending. Look at their situation. Mm. Look at all their outgoing versus their income, and then think, all right, what's my appropriate? Mm. They they see that they're uh, allowed to take forty percent, so they get some house which is forty percent yeah. of their income, and that was okay. That was responsible financial products, mm. and they said, no, that's not how we really work. How we really work is that we work in a single context, <laughs> and anything that's not in that context is hard. Far, far harder for us to access in our minds um, and if we're given a default we will take that default mm. we won't question that default and analyze it mm. as a layman um, and so therefore if you give us a default you're actually greatly influencing the situation 
And I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a reminder for all communicators to go, I come into this with all sorts of assumptions about what people do and what users like and what users will do if this or that happens. And they're not properly tested against the reality of, of human experience. Wow. Well, that's cool. I mean, you're really getting into some deep topics and, and, and the psychology of the mind. So yeah. I'm looking forward to your presentation. Thank you. I'm excited about it. I really am. I hope that it, uh, I hope that it connects with people. All right. Well, thanks, Nos. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Hi, we're at Intelligent Content in San Jose, and I'm talking with Rahel Bailey. Uh, Rahel, tell me, what was the name of your presentation here, and tell us a little bit about it. Well, I have um, I had a workshop that was an all-day workshop, and tomorrow I'm giving a presentation with Scott Abel on how we did the book. So you know that we have this content strategy book, the language of content strategy, and I think that's the most interesting thing to talk about. We um, realized that the way the usability field was 20 years ago where you would ask somebody for wireframes and then you'd have to have a 20-minute conversation to make sure that they meant the same thing that mm. you meant. We're at that same stage in content strategy. You say, I need a content audit and somebody thinks that's an inventory or somebody says an audit and that means an inventory and an audit and analysis. And so we said, okay, we need to have a standardized vocabulary. And so um, we didn't want it to be the Scott and Rahel show. We wanted it to be a community uh, project and we wanted it to be something that could grow and expand. So we um, asked 50 different people. We, had, we ended up with 52 terms. And we said, okay, that's a good starter kit. And so what we're going to do is um, find, um, Scott and I each contributed one term, and then we'll find 50 other people that are known for that concept or that word, uh, they have some expertise in it, and let's all contribute. And then we have a, a deck of practice cards. So when you go to a client and you say, I need these 10 cards, you can kind of put them in your pocket and then use them as crib notes. Hmm. And, uh, and we're having a website. So on that website, uh, once a week we're going to release a term, and then whoever contributed that term will moderate a discussion in the community about that term. So when you, um, if you have um, differences of opinion, they can be brought to the table and discussed constructively, and we might tweak the definition based on what people come up with, or we might say, well, we need a new term for this, or or um, let's borrow a term from another profession and, and repurpose it. So I th I'm very excited about that because it's, um, it's an exciting project for me because it is crowdsourced, and it does involve the community, and, um, and we decided that because we're content strategists and we're kind of on the technical side of content strategy, we needed to walk the talk. And so we single sourced it without using a big fancy CMS or anything, but we did a, um, yeah. a single sourcing project for it. So that's very exciting for me. So yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to check out this book. Uh, I was glad to get a free copy. I haven't really uh, seen it, the insides of it, more than just <laughs> glancing through it. But there are really 52 terms that are yes. kind of specific to the content strategy domain. Yes. So how did you come up with the 52 terms? Like, who was it just a listing of a brainstorm? Or like, how, who decides? Like, okay, A, how do you come <laughs> up with the terms? And then who decides what's the authoritative definition of each term? Well, uh, that's why we wanted to make this a community thing. Because who decides? I don't want to be the person who decides on everything. But I had started this originally because I was doing a workshop, a day-long workshop like I did here. And in that workshop, I would talk about 
different deliverables. So I made a, a small deck of cards, 12, and these, these 12 cards each were for a deliverable or an activity. Hmm. And so I, I guess I started with the first 12. You know, th this is what, what they're about. And um, then we expanded it to uh, localization terms. And so you know, I'm not an expert in localization. I've done my share of it, but I, I'm not an expert in it. So I didn't want to be the one to determine these. So um, I think it's like, which 52 terms? That's just a starter kit. We'll probably end up with hundreds of terms. But there are things like define content. I get that question all the time. What do you mean by content? Hmm. Uh, define content strategy. Define the content life cycle. And then some of the deliverables that you are asked to produce. So we, d we have it kind of in different sections. There's the core concepts. So they're not deliverables, they're concepts, like single sourcing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, responsive design, adaptive con... Oh, no, oh no, responsive design. We couldn't find somebody to write <laughs> it in time. So that has to go in the next edition. Okay. Uh, but we had uh, like adaptive content. Intelligent content. So who, who's going to do intelligent content? Well, Anne Rockley, of course. <laughs> and uh, who's going to do um, uh, modular content? Well, you know, we found somebody who that's what he's been doing for 20 years. So, you know, when we are defining it, uh, we're looking at, you know, something very short and snappy and something that is just tells you what it is. And then people got to write an essay. So each topic is a two-page spread. So it's, you know, there's a short definition and then there's a, uh, a short statement that says kind of why, why it's important to a content strategist to know this. And then, um, then there is a kind of a 250 word essay that talks a little bit more about the concept and how you can incorporate it into your practice. And of course, 250 words isn't a lot, yeah. so it's quite brief. How, how did you come up with the idea for this pattern of a book where you have a definition and a short <coughs> essay for a large range of terms? I mean, this, this, is, this is not your traditional book, right? This is no. kind of like a, what would you call this genre or, or where does it come from? Um, well, it's a reference book, and we wanted something that would be very uh, bite-sized, that you didn't have to read the whole thing, that you could just look at it and say, you know, for example, maybe you're a client who um, everyone's telling you you need to do adaptive content. You're going, well, what on earth is adaptive content? You can pull out the book, read the two pages, and you're done. Mm. But it really started with the cards, because without the essay, these were on cards, and we did single sources out to cards so it had to fit on the card and that's how yeah. it became this you know this is ah. the, the dictionary definition what fits on a card and then the little mm. statement so the cards serve the purpose of kind of giving you a simple definition that you can easily walk away with yes you know the cards is, is, is an intriguing idea it makes it a little more tactile do you do anything with the cards? I saw that one of them had a joker symbol or something. <laughs> Can you play a game with these cards? Like well, I suppose you could. Um, well, you know, I did the cards kind of as a novelty item so that you could say, here, here are the, um, it's almost like, have you heard of, um, uh, they don't call it sprint poke, uh, I think it's sprint poker. So, you know, when you're doing agile and you have this deck of cards and it basically tells you how long a sprint will be and and then if you don't know, you just like pull out a card and yeah. So I had these cards that would go with the the workshop, and what happened was I started handing out these cards at meetups, 
And then Scott would say, this woman came up to me and she pulled this dog-eared deck of cards out of her purse and she said, I use these every day. I thought, why would you use them every day? And he said, she said, before I go in to talk to a client, I flip through them and I say, these are the three things I, I must remember to speak about and I, you know, put them on top. And I just, I go through them every day kind of as a touch point. That's like my little checklist of things did I remember to, to think about this, 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 for those 12 things. But it had nothing about translation and it didn't have anything about all the technical concepts. And so we said, okay, you know, there are lots of terms that people don't know about hmm. or that they don't. So for example, transclusion. Hmm. Elliot Kimber is the king of transclusion. So we asked him if he would um, <laughs> write that term and he was happy to. Hmm. So um, if you don't know what transclusion is, how can you use it in your practice? And if you don't know what transclusion is, then how can you explain it to anyone else? Or if someone says, hey, should we do transclusion? You're going to go, ah, uh, right? And so transclusion is like the cornerstone of Ditta. That's pretty, you know, that's pretty cool that you guys have, like, you're, it's, it's as if you're making a dictionary, right? Yes, it and, is. And uh, I think it's really worthwhile to have a set of vocabulary terms that people can agree on, an authoritative one for a new industry. I well, think it's uh, highly worthwhile. What we would like to do is that in the second edition next year to have another 20 terms or another 30 terms as people say, hey, we do this all the time in content strategy or as part of content strategy. Um, can we have that term in the book too? And I don't think that we're going to say no, you know, we're, I don't see why we would say no, yeah. but we had to start somewhere. Yeah. And so we have 52 cards, 52 weeks, one term a week, that's a year's project. And so that's like, it's a good starter kit. And, and yeah. um, on the, the content strategy Google group just a couple of days ago, somebody said, we should have a glossary. Mm. And everyone should contribute to it. And we should make it kind of, you know, wiki-like so that people can voice their opinions. And um, I said, yeah, that's great. And if you go to this URL, we started it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what we want to do is kind of bring everybody in and have that focal point where people can say, I don't think that that's what this is. And here's what I do in my practice. And, and so then we can say, okay, well... Let, let's look at that and, and let's find a word for it and then we can all use it and when we talk to each other and we talk to our clients or to developers mm. we're all speaking the same language yeah well, that's great so if people want to find out more about the language of content strategy where should they go the language of content strategy .com, okay or they can buy the book on Amazon or through XML press okay. um, and um, yeah really the website's probably the, the good starting point. All right. Well, thanks, Rahel. I appreciate you talking to me. Oh, I appreciate you interviewing me. So, good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey. Hi, I'm Tom. We're at Intelligent Content in a Conference in San Jose. I'm talking with Mark Baker and with Analectic Communications, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mark, you gave a workshop yesterday. Tell me what was the title of it and kind of tell us a little bit about the workshop. Uh, sure. My, my workshop was called um, Content is Architecture. Um, the subtitle was um, What to Do in a World Where Every Page is Page One. Um, we talk a lot about information architecture, uh, and, and rightly so, 
but in most cases the information architecture is treated as separate from the content. Um, you can often hear people say, well I used to be a writer and now I'm an information architect, as if the architecture and the content were very separate things and it's often rather like um, if the architecture is the Christmas tree, the content is the ball hanging off the branch on the Christmas mm. tree. Um, and my you know, my great theme is every page is page one. People don't come to the architecture, they come to the page, they come to the content. And so that really where you need the architecture to be is in the content itself. And that to me has two aspects. One is about how you construct each piece of content. Every page is page one and I have a set of principles about how you construct content so that that happens, that works. And the other is the way in which it is linked. Um, not linking arbitrarily, but linking along lines which I call the lines of subject affinity, which is essentially a way of saying that um, taxonomy and metadata should drive your linking. Uh, what this lets you do is instead of having to pick which branch of this tree does this particular piece of content go on, you end up with it intersecting many different forms of classification, many different taxonomies will pass through each piece of content because it mentions so many different subjects. And you can very clearly see this in a Wikipedia article where if you go, as you read through the article, most of the links are links to things on related subjects. So the article mentions a subject, it links to it. Yeah. Uh, and if you take those links, uh, a set of them, they would actually form a taxonomy. But the taxonomy is now being expressed through the content. So mm. it's coming from the bottom up, where the reader actually is when they're engaging with your content. Well, so if what kind of resistance do you get from people? Like during your workshop, did people say, oh man, I'm going to have to redo my content a certain way? Like what would what would be the way that somebody has to change their content? Um, like if they move to a certain structured authoring, they may have to start separating things out in new ways. Yeah, one of the difficulties is that, especially in TechCom, most of our tools have still have a very top-down orientation. They're table of contents driven. Mm. Uh, and that creates, it, first of all, it makes it, it difficult to do a more web-like presentation. Uh, wikis are the notable exception to this. Wikis are a great mm. every page is page one, bottom-up kind of media, um, though they lack structure, unfortunately, most of them. Um, but most of our other tools are very top-down, very table of contents driven. So that creates an immediate difficulty. Um, the other difficulty that people run into is even though most people don't use content like a book, not for technical communication tasks where they have some device to interact with and they're coming to the content occasionally, not sitting down and reading, which we've always known, which John Carroll demonstrated you know, in the 80s with his research that led to the Nuremberg Funnel. Um, but the book is still socially normative. It's what your VP expects you to produce, even though he probably hasn't read one in five years. Mm -hmm. But it is, it has this aura of correctness about mm -hmm. it. This is what content is supposed to look like. 
So even though we don't use content like that, it's still the norm against which we evaluate what kind of content we should be creating. So I think the great hurdle is for people to accept the web as normative for content delivery. And it's really curious that uh, that still really hasn't happened, even though we're fascinated by the web, we use the web every day, there is still this norm around the book model that people will refer back to, mm. even though they never actually use or hardly ever use content that way. Mm. And this is the, the biggest stumbling block for people. Well, why is it that we're so like attached to the book paradigm? Is it because so many technical writers come from humanities backgrounds where the book is like the, the praised model, or is it just that we don't really, the web is too messy, or what? Like, why? I think it is that, that the messiness of the web, I think, is part of it. We were, we came from a civilization that worked by classification because without, in, in a physical world, if stuff isn't classified, you cannot find it. Mm. Now, that isn't true on the web because we have search. Mm. Um, and as David Weinberger says, everything is miscellaneous. And we have all these different ways in which connections get made between things. And that's how we actually navigate. Mm. But the problem with that um, from a management point of view is if you look at the map of all those connections, all you see is spaghetti. Mm -hmm. So you can't look at that type of organization from the top down. The only type of organization you can look at from the top down is the hierarchy, the book model, the paper mm -hmm. model. And that's a necessity in the world of paper. If you organize things physically, you have to do that. Mm. If you organize things digitally, you don't. It can be on as many different um, principles of organization operating simultaneously as you like. But as you say, if you come out of a humanities background, we come out of a, an education system that's based on texts. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my complaints is that the Nicholas Carr uh, the Shallows School that complains that with the web we have lost our ability to focus, to concentrate, and to comprehend. But if you look at how people are measuring that, they're looking at the ability to focus, comprehend um, a single text. Hmm. I mean, technical communication is not about comprehending texts. Technical communication is about getting a job done. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the web, you may go very quickly through three or four different pages on the web on different sites, a forum, some documentation, uh, and back to another forum. And that journey gets you to the point where you can go back and get your work done because you, now you've found an answer. Um, did you focus on one particular document? No. Did you focus on the job you were trying to achieve? Yes. So that's how the web tends to work mm. for us. And we're not used to that in an organizational sense. Now you recently wrote a book on this topic, Every Page is Page One. Tell me, um, when was the book released and, and how has it been received? Have you been getting fan mail, hate mail, no mail? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was released last October. Um, it's apparently been selling well, my publisher tells me, uh, and in fact it is one of the free giveaways uh, that uh, one of the vendors here is using for their um, 
prefer their booth, which is really flattering. Uh, I saw that. The, for that. The WebWorks booth, right? The WebWorks yep. booth is, is giving away copies of it. And I went and signed them. So oh. they are now giving away signed copies, <laughs> which is really neat. And I'm certainly running into people who say, oh, I've read your book. And uh, so that that's very gratifying. That's great. That's great. I mean, um, <clears throat> I know you handled this in the book, where it's like you're writing a book about uh, that, that resisting the book format and so forth. Uh, do you have any plans to like I don't know um, do any more kind of web versions of? of of the book or anything, or I guess your blog has most of the content anyway, but in different, different uh, patterns and so forth. Yes, um, the it, the blog came first, and the book came afterwards. And when I started on the book, I thought this will be pretty easy because I've got all this content already. Uh -huh. um, and it, it was a kind of object lesson in the difference between the web model and the book model, because when you actually try and take blog posts and yeah. build them into a book, it just doesn't work. They weren't linearized, which is great on the web, but when you... There, there are still applications for books. There are still um, subjects that require the long read, mm. because you have to assemble many different ideas. You know, in technical communication, we're dealing with people who've got an object, a product, a process that that's their principal interaction. Mm. And any interaction with documentation is secondary. And it's only until they can get back to the thing they were working on. But there are sort of you know, philosophical things, process things, where there isn't that same um, you know, primary object. The, yeah. the primary object is the content itself. And there the book works very well. Mm -hmm. I mean, the web has not driven away books. Yeah. Um, in many ways, it's, it's done a great job of helping us to sell books, but it's changed the role. It's uh, you know as as um, television changed the role of books, mm -hmm. uh, as movies changed the role of books. If you look at the the sort of books that used to be produced, uh, the penny dreadfuls uh, of a hundred years ago. Well, TV takes care of all that kind of light entertainment now. The book gets a more restricted mm -hmm. but still absolutely vital role to play. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, it's. It, I remember reading your book and uh, even the early draft copies, and thinking that you know, these points are really valid, and and I think a lot of techcom kind of misses it, or they they try to interpret it in a way that makes it so what they're doing it, it seems to be valid, even if it's not. And uh, I applaud you on on, on that effort. Um, if people want to know more, if they want to learn more about uh, every page is page one about you, where should they go? Um, well, for every page is page one. The blog has the um, very complicated address of everypagespage1.com. Um, and uh, for me, the company uh, website is analecta.com. Uh, and the two are connected to each other. So if you can't remember one, just go to the other, and uh, you'll be able to go back and forth between the two. All right. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you. We're at Intelligent Content in San Jose, California, and I'm talking with Kyle Weens of Dozuki. So Kyle, tell me, um, did you give a presentation here or did you guys just have a booth? 
Uh, we're exhibiting, but uh, we're also going to speak tomorrow. Okay, well, and what's your presentation on? I'm talking about uh, a bunch of exciting stuff that we're doing. We, we create documentation uh, software for people that are writing step-by-step -step visual instructions. So we're going to be talking about how to get people excited about doing practical things in the real world and how to use documentation to improve real-world processes. So that the key phrase that I like there is how to get people excited about stuff. And I noticed that you guys do some gamification of your, of your stuff. Tell me kind of what you do to motivate people to contribute and how you reward them and so forth. Yeah, so we run the largest repair manual in the world, iFixit, which is a uh, compendium of instructions on how to fix everything from a car to an iPhone. And as you're following a repair, if you see uh, an error in the manual, you can contribute, you can hit edit and, and pitch in and fix it. But we were trying to think of how can we motivate people, how can we get them excited to contribute more. And so we, we built in a reputation system where people earn points. The more that people, uh, if you write a repair guide and somebody else uses it, you earn points. If, uh, if you submit an answer that's useful and people vote you up, you, you get points. And then uh, we have a collection of, of fun badges that, that you can earn for doing sort of weird or unusual things. Do these, do these um, things motivate the users to earn points? I mean, does it, is it meaningful to them? I, I mean, the, the trick with any reputation-based system is that you're building an economy, and if, if the points are meaningless, if it's, if it's trivial to get points, then then there's no incentive for someone. So you have to create something where, just like in a monetary economy, money means something. Your point system has to mean something. Hmm. So we spent a lot of time working on balancing it, just like if you're building a video game and you had two different, you have the red team and the blue team, you have to make sure that it's not unbalanced, because if it's unbalanced, it stops being fun. And with a reputation system, you have to make sure that uh, the points mean something and that uh, you've got you've got something, I mean, if I'm awarding you points, I, that has to be something tangible that you did that, that made my life better, and I'm gonna give you points for it. So you, you said you have a lot of students that are kind of involved, or, or you mentioned that you sometimes contact professors and universities and and have the students write manuals as part of their uh, assignments, right? Or somebody told me that. <laughs> do do the students get points, and then are those points factored into their grades ever? We haven't gotten there yet. Part, part of the one of the challenges we have with our with our uh, reputation system is that you write a manual, you don't get get points or credit for it immediately. You get you get credit when people start using it, and that takes a while. So I might write a manual, and six months later you use it to fix something. I'm not going to get points up front. I'm going to get points later when when you when you do the repair. So we have a a delayed gratification that's a bit of a challenge and we're trying to work on ways that we can we can get people more excited so we have students that will write uh, repair manuals as part of their coursework so we'll go to the university and say hey you have a tech writing class for engineers that's fantastic would you like a real-world project for that for your class and we've got professors at about 30 different universities that have uh, found that this is a really useful project so they use it in their class and the gamification the point based system in the class is their grade mm -hmm. but there's a real-world benefit that they're writing a repair manual that's on ifixit.com that's going to be available for the long term. So you you talked earlier about like the, the challenges of trying to gamify, trying to make it balanced and, and meaningful. What are some other challenges you've you've faced in just trying to engage your your audience? You, you got to find a way to uh, connect. I mean, 
Gamification and any sort of re reputation-based system is is really a proxy for people's intent. So you want to capture as much intent as you possibly can and then channel it into pats on the back ways that make people feel good. And motivating people to contribute reputation into the system, whether that's that's liking something or voting something up, that's difficult. You have to work on motivating those folks as well. So getting getting inputs into the system, I've found is is the hardest, the, the most difficult part for us. Uh, figuring out the balance and rewarding people, we, we've kind of got down, but we're always working on. How, you know, so, someone could be googling and saying, "Hey, I, I, I broke my iPhone and it's doing this weird thing. What should I do?" And you land on a question. How do we get people that land on that question to say, "Yes, that solved my problem," or "Yes, that was useful"? Uh, and that engagement level is something that, that we're always uh, continuing to work on. I don't, I don't think we have solved. We're excited about looking for other ways. Of what would your site be like without that engagement layer, without that game layer? Would it? Would I mean? Would it be? A lot of people look at gamification and say non-mission critical, kind of icing on the cake. Is that the case, or is it actually like a core driver? If you took it away, would your site just still be pretty much the same, or what? It, it's hard. I mean. I, I don't. I, we, it would be interesting to run an A/B test and see, right? I think for the anonymous user that's on our site, not contributing, not engaging, it wouldn't. It wouldn't change anything. Yeah. For, for, the, for the core community members, I think. I think it's really a, a part of their day to day. And we have a. Uh, so with our point system, you limit out. You can earn 200 points a day, huh. and they'll work until they hit the 200 points, and then they stop. Huh. Uh, as it shows, it's, it really is. I mean, impacting their lives. Now, there's an extent that we don't really want them to be too addicted to it. So I'm not going to raise the cap, uh, but. Uh, uh, that cap also sort of uh, helps constrain uh, inflation in the system. Why don't you want them to be too addicted? Like, what do you mean? Well, I, I mean, they, because we, we don't want people to burn out. Oh, we don't okay. want people to Farmville on it and burn yeah. out. And then, right? I, w I would much rather build a system that people want to contribute a little bit to every day for years yeah. at a time. So you have 10,000 manuals on your site? or, or how Yeah, many? we've got about 10,000 uh, how-to guides on iFixit. Uh, we've got how to fix your Starbucks Barista espresso machine. We've got how to, uh, you know, how to change the oil in your car, how to fix your iPhone. So I've got, I've got an iPhone here, yeah. and the back of it uh, just comes right off. So you can get in and replace the battery in an iPhone very easily. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And so then we <laughs> took the software we used to build iFixit, and that's Dazuki, and we make it available to anyone that wants to teach people how to do something in the real world. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So uh, if people want to learn more about um, Dazuki or iFixit, where should they go? So our Dazuki software is at dazuki.com, D-O-Z-U-K-I, uh, and iFixit is uh, at iFixit.com. So if you've got anything that's broken, you want to take it apart, learn how to, how to repair it yourself, we'll hook you up. All right. Well, thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Hi, we're at Intelligent Content in San Jose, and I'm talking with Teresa Putke. Uh, Teresa, tell me what it, what's your presentation on the title, kind of, and what motivated you to, to present about it, about the topic. Well, Kathy Wagner and I did a talk called "Diagnosing and Solving Content Problems," and we wanted to give people a really practical talk for how they can go back home, do their jobs, and have a process or a framework for looking at what's wrong with their content and possibly how to solve it. So that's what we talked about today. So how do you figure out what's wrong with your content? <laughs> well, if you check out our slides, there's a, there's a whole process that goes along with it. 
So basically, you, you look at the documentation and research that you already have. You interview your stakeholders to find out what they want or what they don't want. Um, you can summarize your findings. You can do a content audit, a site structure audit, a search audit. And then you basically list those findings. You prioritize them with your stakeholders. And then you solve them. And there's four aspects to solving it that we talked about. There was content usability, findability and searchability, audience targeting, and tone and messaging. And those are some of the aspects you can you can look at when you're trying to address your problems. So what would you say is like a common thing that's wrong with documentation? Like a, documentation, yeah. like technical documentation. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean okay. we're talking about finding the problems. What's like the most common problem that, that, that you see or that people have? I think uh, I started as a technical writer and I don't do technical writing anymore but one of the things that I always found really difficult about technical writing was that I didn't know a whole lot about who my audience was, who would be reading it and what their challenges and problems and, and work um, requirements were. So it was really difficult for me to write to my audience to meet their needs. I was kind of, uh, sometimes I was to document how the software worked instead of how their pro how the process might work and how the software fit into that and then how they could adjust the software to meet their business needs. So I think that for technical writers, the knowing your audience and understanding their needs is one of the hardest problems that they can solve. Yeah, and so it's really comfortable as a technical writer for me to stay in my little cube, right, and not have yeah. to interact with the, the people who are using the software. So, yeah, yeah. So what do you recommend as a way to not have to like go out of my comfort zone and like uh, heaven forbid, go into their actual environment, right? I want yeah. to just stay right on my computer. How can I still know my audience? Yeah. Well, I think for technical writers, it's really difficult for them to get in front of their audience. That they're so they're removed from the user experience or marketing, and it's just really hard to get there. They don't have the profile within the company to do that. However, uh, I did before I was a technical writer. I was a technical support mm -hmm. analyst, and that was that was a wealth of information on what people are trying to do with their software and how it's not succeeding. So I would say um, one option is to sit with a tech support person just for an hour or a day, uh, kind of do like a study on how what their lives are like. Because at least if the documentation can't support the user, it can support the tech support to help them support the end user. Um, the other thing is to just look through the call logs that you get, um, see what problems, what questions people have. They're not always problems, they're sometimes questions about how the software works. Um, that's a really good way just to look at information that's already being collected in a, from a different viewpoint is a really good way to, to improve your job. Yeah, yeah, you know, I know that I should do all those things, <laughs> but it seems like I rarely have time to do them. Uh -huh. I mean, I know I should look at the user's search terms, I should review yeah. support calls, I should look at every question, but there's so much information yeah, that I could document that I don't. Uh, how, how do you kind of manage that? Like, do you, do you focus on just the common questions, or, or what do you do with all these fringe and edge cases and non-standard things oh, that yeah. are frustrating users? Yeah. Well. Um, there's that rule, right? You write for 80% of your users, not 20%. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that if it were me looking back, um, I would have personas and scenarios and write to those. And okay. um, 
You know that 20% of people who are going to use your your product in a non-standard way, they can figure it out themselves too. Yeah. Like if they're going to do that, then they can get they can pay for some consulting. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the writers influencing the bottom line. <laughs> uh, well, another problem that I run into is is lack of like a, a defined persona or lack of a, mm -hmm. a I don't know common characteristics of an audience. I have some people who are who are marketers, others who are developers, some people who are really tech savvy others are new mm -hmm. how do you write for seven different audiences and, and have it meet their needs well I think that each of those audiences has different needs right like a new a new person to the product um, it's gonna have different information needs than somebody who's a power user mm -hmm. um, so I think if you can figure out what different information they need then you can kind of cater to those needs um, you know power user might need to know about process and workflow and a new user just wants to know how to do something and save it properly. So how would you approach that situation of having an advanced user and a beginning user? Would you separate out the material for the beginning user? Would you somehow put little uh, sections to expand for the advanced information within it? Like mm -hmm. how do you how do you merge that information or keep it separated in a way that makes sense in like oh. a documentation set? Um, <laughs> I don't know how technically you would do that, but um, in the past I used to do where I knew that there they were more advanced topics. I um, I didn't go into detail about things that were listed elsewhere. So you know the basic topics you can say, hey, before you read this topic, read those other ones, and uh, and then come back and read this one. Um, in that basic topic, you can say, hey, now once you've read this, you can read this topic as well to get more information. So it's kind of like you know, you, you lay the foundation, but you need to direct them further. And the power users have that foundation, but just in case a, a new user ends up at that power place, they can say, they can say, okay, I have, I don't have this foundation. I can go back. You can also make an image that says, hey, this is the process, or this is what you need to know, or this is how you can access all these things. So you, you you've been talking a lot about like. Uh, when I was a technical writer. Yeah. Right? Now you're, right. you've been an information architect for That's many right. years now. Yeah. So uh, which, yeah. which is better, being a tech writer or an information architect and why? <laughs> uh, being an information architect is better. The reason I moved out of technical writing was because I wasn't having the influence on design that I wanted to have. And I was, I was documenting these things that didn't work and eventually I said to the programmers, I said, why don't you just let me design it? And then I don't have to document all these things that don't work. I can, I can design it so it works and then you can make it. And they were relieved because they don't do design. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into design and that's how I realized how much more power there was in that area than in technical writing. Um, However, I stopped being a technical writer about 10 years ago, so I can't speak to what the field is today or how it's evolved, um, but that, I, for me, information architecture is a better gig. So when you, when you do information architecture projects, is it usually in the context like of a software application rather than a set of like information or articles that are mm -hmm. being organized? No. It, I do, um, I would call that the software application, I would call that interaction design. Okay. And information architecture for me is content heavy intranets, websites, mm -hmm. content management systems, digital asset management systems, and um, doing the information structure in those as well as like the taxonomy and metadata within that.
So, so one last question. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're when you're approaching a large information set, how important is a taxonomy and why would somebody want to do one? A taxonomy is very important. <laughs> and somebody would want to do one for two main reasons. One is so that authors can find content, and the other is so that users can find content. So authors need to find content so they can reuse it, so they're not copying and pasting things around or just rewriting it. You don't want people rewriting or copying and pasting because it ruins the um, consistency as well as uh, accuracy of your content. Um, so that helps authors in that way. And for users, it helps them find the content that um, if the taxonomy and metadata is better, then um, in the search results, it will it will improve the search results on the on the, on the website or the intranet. And it kind of, I guess, it shows you what's What's more important about that content? It, um, I don't really know how to say it. Anyway. Oh well, no, that's yeah. that's a great answer, and uh, I I should have backed up and like defined what a taxonomy is and so forth. Do you want to give like a, just a brief definition, kind of what yeah. what we mean by taxonomy, and just uh, briefly? Yeah, yeah, no. In its simplest form, it's a list of controlled words that people use to apply tags to their content so they can find it, reuse it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a list of your key words in your company. You just apply that to your content and you can find it by subject, you can find it by, um, well, author, although that's more metadata. Um, yeah, it's basically whatever is important to you. You make a list, you apply it to your content so you can find it again. Uh, so if users want to find more information about about you, about um, solving problems and so forth with, with uh, design and everything, where should they go? I know you have a newsletter, right? Or you had a newsletter, you transitioned into something else? Yeah, yeah, so there's my website. Uh, it's www.keypoint.ca, and point is with an E on the end. And uh, also, I'm on LinkedIn, you can look me up. My last name is P-U-T-K-E-Y. All right, so, well yeah. thanks, Teresa, I appreciate it. You're welcome. Hey, starting. Hi, we're at Intelligent Content in uh, San Jose, 2014. I'm talking with Don Day. Uh, Don, tell me, what presentation did you give? What was the title of it? And tell us a little bit about what generated your interest in, in this topic. The presentation I gave was based on an observation I'd made last summer as I was uh, doing some work with uh, different types of web pages and seeing that certain categories or, or shapes and uses of content kept repeating across different themes. And uh, the one that really caught my eye was um, infographics and single-page websites and um, um, so-called micro-publishing, which is uh, sites like medium.com, uh, which have very nice typographic layout. Uh, very atypical for content, uh, content, and they look different on the face of things, but they all use the same kind of internal architecture. So what I proposed for the content, for the conference was uh, uh, doing a, a survey of these, and <laughs> you've asked me the wrong title because again I'm so tired <laughs> that I'm, Go I'm going to have to pull that out. <laughs> um, and uh, it, with my uh, 
Connecting intelligent content with micro-publishing and beyond. Uh, okay. A little long to remember. So you're basically taking structured content and putting it in different uh, very formal layouts or, or different sp specific layouts or what? Different specific layouts. Um, and again, the layout engines that are available for various web CMS uh, publishing tools um, typically offer a range of different formats, but if you want to change your content from presentation in one format to one that's very different, then you may have to do a great deal of manual um, re-architecture of that HTML content in order to do that. My premise is that you should be able to move your content into a structured environment, mm -hmm. a structured authored environment, which has been the whole premise of responsive web design anyway, is that given any uh, responsive theme, as long as you have good adaptive content, you should be able to pour it into the holes in that theme and have it adapt automatically. So this was my premise and I actually as the use case for this I took Scott Abel's five technologies that market uh, content marketers need to know oh. <coughs> and converted that out of its PowerPoint version into the structured content and then built the demo reassembly mm -hmm. tools on that. And uh, surprise of surprise, it all worked. I knew it would, but uh, I've got now a framework that I can take, again, any kind of structured content and push it back through and demonstrate the same thing again. So what what what's the structure of the content? Is it in DITA or <coughs> some other structure that's the foundation? What I've been saying about the HTML world is that um, we love the tools, that we love the devil that we know. Mm -hmm. uh, the devil I know is Ditta, of course, uh, but it's actually the XML part of it that is the, uh, the, the tool empowerment mm -hmm. for it. The, <coughs> the value that Ditta brings to it is that there's been already a great deal of community input on it yeah. and tool development around it. So actually by choosing Ditta as the format, uh, I was able to make use of existing uh, XML processing schemas and mm. transforms and just integrate them into this uh, demonstration. It would be possible to use any XML though, and in fact DocBook would work and uh, basically any XML that was appropriate for is it. Is there a site people could go to see the demo in action? Um, when the site is opened again, it will be called Expedita oh. Info. Okay. Uh, there is there's a demo site there now, but it's with technology that's two years old, and oh, I need okay. to refresh it. Uh, but there is a domain Expedita. Uh, I took from Dita, obviously, and the EXP gives it the sense of urgency or expediency. Okay. And uh, so Expedita Info. What? In your presentation, or, or just in general, what would be something a critic might say about this method of transforming your content into these different uh, different structures or different different output formats? Like, what would a critic or a devil's advocate say to, to this? Oh, I imagine the first question would be why. <laughs> and um, I think you have to weigh the value of that against the results that you can get from it. So, right off the gate. What's possible is that you 
have the t kind of content to work with now that fits into any responsive web design anyway. So if your goal has been responsive web design mm -hmm. and you want to have adaptive content that gives you the opportunity to personalize the delivery of content through that interface, then data-based content using a framework like this is uh, your short path to achieving that. But in addition, if that content needs to serve multiple purposes, you have one set that's supplied to, uh, say, your um, your themed corporate website, but the same content being repeated in a microsite for some subset of product that you have, mm -hmm. and another set of it for the, uh, again, the um, infographic that you want to develop to use as an SEO uh, uh, honey mm. honey can for your uh, honey pot for your website uh, then this common content can be flowed into all of them without having to develop separate content for each one using separate tools for each one uh, when I look at that I say uh, is it worth the effort involved to do it? Then I think many times the answer may be yes, because once you get the repeatable process in place, hmm. then you lower the cost of maintaining it from there on. Hmm. Have, you, have you implemented something like this um, as part of your regular work or just as kind of an experiment and a, and a pilot? A, a good question. And my website, contelligencegroup.com, is actually a working example of a live data to view uh, website like that. So all of the content on it, including the sidebar content, is data content that's transformed on the fly into the adapted views. Uh, so when you have the sliders uh, with the pictures that fly yeah. across the top, uh, it's actually data content. Okay. Uh, represented by a data map used to drive the dynamic generation of the uh, markup that the JavaScript slides by in the oh. view. Well, that's cool. So that sounds pretty advanced. Now, is that your only output onto that website, or do you also have several others that you're using the content for, like across different websites, or, or how are you reusing this in different ways? Because it's still... Um, not open in the sense that I've gotten it into an open community yet. Uh, the answer is not many. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, I've intentionally uh, striven to make it so that it will run on a standard LAMP or WAMP server oh, okay. stack. And uh, the only addition to it is that you can use a did open toolkit with the XML catalog in it, and at that point, any specialized data content can be rendered through it as well. Now, creating the content to put into it is another question, and uh, I'll answer that when I get an answer. <laughs> but uh, rendering data content as a live delivery system is uh, perfectly fine as long as you follow the principles of data for the web that I gave in a Scott Abel webinar last summer. Great. Uh, last August. Don, if people want to know more about some of these concepts you're talking about, where should they go? The Expedita site or uh, another site that you mentioned? The Expedita.info site would actually be the best one for now because when I put the new version up there, then you'll see it right away. Uh, and there's no point uh, sending anyone someplace else. Uh, it's already a live site, so Expedita.info. All right. Well, thanks, Don. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Hi, we're
we're at Intelligent Content in San Jose, and I'm talking with Sarah O'Keefe. Sarah, uh, tell me what was your presentation on and what interested you about the topic? I did a presentation this week on the many facets of content strategy and my main focus was on talking about the hierarchy really of information, of content and how we need to think about all those different levels of content that we have. Is it available? Is it accurate? Is it appropriate? Before we ever get to the question of is it intelligent? So we have all these prerequisite things that we need to deal with and I really had a call to action to the people that were in my session to say when you think about content strategy, look at this hierarchy of content needs and figure out whether you're meeting them all before you get too invested in tools and technologies and systems and new toys and all the rest of it. So can you kind of describe this triangle? Um, like you, you mentioned briefly the layers, but can mm -hmm. you go in more depth a little bit about the, the foundation and then the very top? So most people are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which says essentially that if you don't have food and shelter, you don't care about things like self-actualization, which is at the top of the pyramid. So what I did was I built out a pyramid that covers the content needs. And so the very bottom layer of this is, is the content available? Because if it doesn't exist, if I can't get to it, then it, nothing else really matters. Availability might also include, is it searchable? Can I find it? Because of course available, just the fact that it exists doesn't mean that I I can actually locate the content. So that was the bottom layer, the sort of prerequisite to everything else is available. After that, we have accurate. We like for our content to be accurate. Uh, but again, if it doesn't exist, the fact, or the, if I can't access it, the fact that it's very accurate is not that helpful. Right? First, it has to be available, then I want it to be accurate. After that, we have is it appropriate? Is it in the right language? Is it at the right level for this audience? Does it make sense to this audience? Is it the right voice and tone and all these kinds of things? And then from there we go into uh, connected. Is there a social layer? Can I vote it up? Can I vote it down? Can I maybe edit it? Is it in a wiki? Those types of things. And then the fifth layer is intelligent. Can I manipulate it? Can I personalize it? Can I do things with this information? So my idea is that we have this five layer hierarchy of needs for content which we need to pay attention to and think about those prerequisites before we get into the higher le levels of content. Do people ever get to the highest level? I mean, it seems like a lot of times we're just trying to meet deadlines and we don't have time to really get beyond a couple of levels. Well, and yeah, and that's a, that's a really valid point. And one of the things I said was we really need, if you have minimum viable product on the product side, we have minimum viable content on the content side. And the problem is a lot of people aren't even doing that. So I would argue that minimum viable content mm -hmm. is the first three layers. Available, accurate, appropriate. Mm -hmm. And hardly anybody is doing even that much. So we really need to do that. And then once we've done that, then we can talk about is it connected and intelligent and cool and nifty and all these other things. But really, we're not really serving our customers very well if we don't deliver that baseline of good content. And, and many of us are not doing it because of deadlines. Yeah. What Are there any other reasons why people aren't doing it other than just, I mean, everybody always has deadlines, right? So maybe it's a false excuse. People say that we don't have time. What are, there, what are other reasons why people don't go beyond the basics or why they don't even meet the, the basic standards? Well, I think that in, in the land of, of technical communication, we tend to focus on accuracy above everything else. As long as it's technically accurate, the fact that I've embedded it in an 800-page PDF is acceptable. 
but maybe it's not acceptable to my customer. Maybe they'd rather have something that's much more immediate, much easier to access, but maybe not in PDF, even though it's you know 90% as accurate as the other thing. So I think that it's hard for us to focus on the question of what do our customers really need. And accuracy, of course, is much more important if you're talking about, let's say, a medical device than it is if you're talking about um, a casual game company. So you have to kind of balance these things and look at the question of which is the most important. Uh, appropriate content, which is to say content that, for example, meets a regulatory requirement, is very important if you're a medical device manufacturer, but if you're an unregulated industry, then you can kind of do, you can experiment, you can do different things, and you can come up with cool things. So we have to balance these requirements against our particular industries and what we're doing in those industries and what our, you know, our needs are in that industry and our audience's needs. You work with a lot of different industries. Um, what's your favorite industry to work with? <laughs> well, they're all special yeah. um, in, in different ways. Uh, some are more special than others. Um, I actually think, though, that the ones that are the most interesting to us tend to be the ones that have the most transformative kinds of projects. And that actually ends up being, in many cases, the sort of heavy machinery, heavy industry kinds of companies. Because what they're doing now is they've been doing the same thing for the past 20 years, and now suddenly they're making this huge jump of okay, this isn't working anymore, we need, we need interactive tablet deliverables, we need intelligent content, we need our uh, troubleshooting to talk to our parts catalog, those kinds of things. They're doing some fascinating integration things, and they're, going, they're, they're making such a huge jump, where a lot of industries, a lot of other industries have kind of gradually evolved and gradually moved forward, so they're, they're changing incrementally. So to us, what's really exciting is to talk to somebody that really hasn't changed their process since, you know, something like 1985 and all of a sudden they're ready and they want to go forward and they want to come up with some really cool stuff. Sarah, if somebody wants to find out more about you and, and your company, where should they where should they go? They can find us at scriptorium.com on the web or just, you know, just Google us and we'll turn up. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hi, we're at the Intelligent Content Conference in San Jose, and I'm talking with Marsha Reefer Johnston. Uh, Marsha, tell me, what was your workshop about, and what led you to present on that? My workshop was, and is, because I still do it, and I love to do it, called Write Tighter, and then it has a very long subtitle, and I do that on purpose because typewriting is more than just short writing. It has to do with saying everything you need to say, but not anything more. And I love doing this workshop as part of Intelligent Content Conference because there's so much talk here, and it's exciting talk about the technology and the power of all the tools. And yet, as we have heard Sarah O'Keefe say so often, the quality of that content has to be there to begin with. And it often is not. So you can do all these cool things with the tools and the technology and pump out your content in ways we couldn't even conceive of a few years ago. And if you aren't addressing that quality first, it's pointless, it's wasted effort. So I like to balance out all those voices talking about the intelligent, uh, the, the part of intelligent content that is related to the tools and the technology, 
by speaking to the quality issue and helping people who maybe never learned it in school or maybe they aren't writers by trade but they find themselves having to write blog posts or having to write proposals for their business and they're hungry for how do I do it? How do I do it well? How do I make it engaging and powerful? And I feel like I learned those things and I have a lot to offer that people value and it's an exciting opportunity for me to make a difference and contribute. How, um, how do you measure like good writing and quality? Because I think a lot of people feel like, oh, they, they're, they're you know, A quality writers or that, you know, they, they produce great content, but it's very subjective, right? So how do you measure that in a more quali uh, quantitative way or, or objective way? I did something different this time with this workshop that I've never done before to get to the quantitative question. But before I address the quantitative piece, I want to say the most important way to measure whether your content is effective, and in my case I'm dealing with text specifically, is to get humans reading it and giving you feedback. There are tools out there that can generate reports of what grade level your text is hitting, and those are moderately useful. You may discover that your sentences could be shorter, things like that. But to truly get useful feedback, you have to have humans reading it and Otherwise, there's no quantitative way to say, yes, this content is good. So uh, that, for me, is the most important way of measuring, is to get real human feedback from as close as possible to your target audience. But I did something quantitative this time that was a lot of fun. With our uh, workshop examples, we did befores and afters. So people took their own writing and then used our techniques that we talked about and crunched it down, deleted words, made it tighter, and I had a spreadsheet that counted the words before, counted the words after, and instantly said, you just reduced your word count by 21%. If you were translating this, and then I multiplied 25 cents a word as a ballpark and said, if you were translating a document full of sentences like this and you reduced them all by 21%, multiplied that out over 25 languages, you would have just saved your company $3 million. How, how, how do you, can I, can I ask, how do you, um, what techniques do you use to make writing tighter? Like, mm -hmm. do you just cut out the adjectives? Do you just, uh, I, I don't know, what, what strategies do you use to get more brief? I have developed one slide of flag words that I look for. And most writers will say, oh yeah, I know that. I've seen that. And it is nothing new. But I like to sort of remind people of how dramatically better their writing can be if they're scrupulous about going after those words. And the most important one, and the one thing I want my workshop ease to remember is to look for be verbs like is, am, are, have been, will be, being. Those words are often 
culprits in, in weak sentences, sentences that readers are going to fall asleep over or they're going to move on to the next web page. If you start seeing those words, you're going to notice, oh, I could say that in half the words with an active verb that hammers my point and gets readers engaged. <laughs> so that is my top tip, and I'm giving it to you today free, Tom. No charge. Be verbs. I'm telling you, it will change your life. <laughs> do, do you recommend any kind of um, spell, checker, spell checkers that are out there? I mean, mm -hmm. I've heard of, I mean, there's, there's Acrolinks, there's mm -hmm. other sites like Grammarly, there's just even words spell checker mm -hmm. what do you use or do you just go off of like your own mind I mean uh, how do you how do you catch all these B verbs and other problems I had a, a suggestion come to me from someone who was in my workshop and, and by the way it doesn't matter to me which tool I love them all and I especially love Acrolinks they are amazing um, but this, this person from my workshop, having seen my list of keywords, trigger words, flag words, she went back, she's a marketing director, she went back to her work life and she emailed me later and said, I now go through my stuff in my Word documents and I search for B verbs, I search for LY words, and all down through my list, which by the way is available on my website in a slide share of my presentation. So if anybody is interested, it's yeah, how, how to write. Okay, <laughs> I'd be happy to. It's howtowriteeverything.com. Okay. And the, uh, the slide share, once you get through the first part of the presentation, there's one slide that has just a list of those words on it, and she searches for those words in hmm. her word processing software. Okay. And so that takes you out of thinking about your content, of reading what you're saying, and simply, oh, I have a whole lot of e-verbs in here, and it, it gets you to an easier point of editing out those things, and she thought enough of that strategy that she put it into her Amazon review about the book, oh. that she's finding so many, and for her in marketing, one of her yeah. things most helpful was to find L-Y words or adverbs which marketers love and often just weakens yeah. it, it weakens their their text. Do, do you recommend when people write that they don't focus on the style and grammar and other details or mm -hmm. I, I, and that they focus on that in a second stage or do you recommend that like from the beginning they just implement every good practice? I think it's impossible to do both at once and Though my, my brain kind of quickly goes back and forth between generating and editing, generating and editing, so I'm kind of catching things and editing as I write. But I think that it's most helpful to just let stuff come out and your, your first draft is just going to be full of all the words that I say look for and get rid of. But if you're constantly editing yourself, you almost prevent the ideas from coming. So when you write, do you just let stuff flow and then go back later? And yeah. <laughs> I think that's a smart way to do it. Yeah. And that way you don't, um, you don't prevent ideas from flowing. You just want to let it all come out. Yeah. And then go back through and be ruthless on yourself. So uh, just to wrap up here, you mentioned howtowriteeverything.com. Do you mm -hmm. want to just mention your book too? You have a book that kind of is, is a companion to the site, right? Mm -hmm. And tell people how they can get it. 
the word up, I'm sorry, the book is called <laughs> Word Up, How to Write Powerful Sentences and Paragraphs and Everything You Build from Them. And it's available on the website. It'll point to all the places. You can get it, of course, on Amazon. It's available in Kindle. It's available on Google Play. It's an EPUB. It's a Mobi. Wow. <laughs> and so I have one web page. There's a Buy tab, B-U-Y. Okay. And it lists all the places in all the formats. And all right. Well, thanks, Marcia. Appreciate You're welcome. it. Welcome. I'm Marcia Reefer Johnston, and I have the privilege today of talking with Tom Johnson, the author of the famous blog, I'd Rather Be Writing. And I love watching Tom interview other people, and I think that it's about time somebody turned the tables and uh, allowed him to be in the focus of the camera and be on the receiving end of questions and give us a chance to hear some of his thoughts. So Tom, I would like to ask you some questions. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm ready. I have been following your blog for several years, mm -hmm. and I'm struck by the variety of topics that you write about, and that's one of the things that draws me <laughs> to your blog. I'm a technical writer, and I enjoy all those topics, but you also talk about your own life and mm -hmm. interests. How did you decide what kind of blog you were going to create? Well, you know, I kind of, I didn't just start my blog with an initial idea of, oh, I'm going to write about technical writing. Actually, I started blogging probably seven years ago when I became a chapter webmaster for the STC in Florida. And I started to kind of post some news and updates. I, I moved our site over to WordPress and I was, ex because it was just easier, look easier than, than running a regular static HTML site. And I started to post some things and after a while I realized that I was the only one posting. I tried to get other chapter members to post. I wanted it to be like a group news update kind of site. But since I was the only one posting, I decided, you know what, I'll just create my own blog. I don't want to dominate the whole thing. So, um, and my posts have kind of evolved and changed. At first they were just like little news bites, and then at times I've tried to like make them more essayistic, essayistic. other times more story-driven. Yeah, my, my interests fluctuate, but I think at some point we all write about what we know, and uh, professionally, I know TechCom, and so I kind of gravitate towards that. I do have a personal blog that's like just family journal type stuff, but it's not really how I brand myself online. I think um, it's interesting. There are we do choose to to uh, stick with a particular focus, mm -hmm. and I've chosen like the TechCom focus for my blog. But there, I really do have a lot of other dimensions to me outside mm -hmm. of technical writing that mm -hmm. people don't often see. For example, I, I absolutely love to play basketball mm -hmm. and probably play a lot more basketball than I block. Interesting. <laughs> but um, but it, anyway, so yeah, I, I have varied interests. And, and yeah, the blog is an evolution of wherever I'm at in this time of life. I think that's one of the things that has such appeal is that it's not just a topic-based blog, it's you as a person. So, and your voice comes through so clearly, at least for me. That's oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I mean, um, I try to be transparent and honest on the blog. Um, I think really the key to like a good blog is to tell stories. Mm. 
and that those originate from experience, right? When you have an experience, and that leads to a story, which then leads to kind of an investigation of a topic. And it's hard to tell stories without also coming across as somewhat personal or without sharing and opening up yourself. So, I mean, you really can't do that. You can't have a successful blog without telling some kind of personal stories or some stories from your life. So how do you define a successful blog? I think um, well, blog posts that really engage me, uh, they're posts that, I mean, that, that are relevant, they're meaningful, they're, they're, they have some kind of appeal. I, I don't know, that's a good question. Um, I like it when people kind of begin with an experience they've had that then leads them into a reflection. I really like it when people are thinking critically, that they're asking questions. I, I really like the curious mindset. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when a, a good essay has all of these elements, a good personal essay, I mean, um, it kind of it kind of has a balance between story and experience and thought and, and ideas and kind of interweaving those two has always been something that's fascinated me. Um, and I think it's a, it's an art to do that well. Um, so yeah. So interweaving the narrative of some kind of story with then the more stepping back and analyzing and looking at it and commenting on it is that what you mean by interweaving? Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, so. As a background, I, I did get an MFA in nonfiction writing, mm-hmm. and that kind of form has always appealed to me but the problem is um, like when you're in graduate school you don't really have a a focus outside of your life so a lot of times people fall into like memoirish type writing Mm -hmm. but when you're in in a professional field and you relate an experience it's not like it's not memoirish it's just like a it's a springboard into a topic it's 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 never the focus the focus is never on really you as a person although the experience may be somewhat personal it's always like a dimension to the profession so so it works when you're when you're kind of telling personal stories in a professional field versus when you're just telling stories about your personal life that may not really relate to a professional domain I think it's an excellent way to deal with technical content that you look at it through a personal lens and that's engaging and it hooks people and it's familiar your voice is familiar and conversational so then when you're dealing with technical content it brings it to life and you have lots of readers. How many readers do you have now? Um, you know, I, I don't know. Feedburner like fluctuates between 4,800 and 2,200 almost every other day, depending upon who opens things. But I was going to, I was going to add one more detail about mm. what makes a successful blog post. Uh, now that I've been thinking about it, the most successful blog posts, in my opinion, are those blog posts that change how I think about something. Um, if I if I sit down and I really think about a topic and write about it and after that I, I have a different way of thinking or it's changed uh, my way of thinking, that to me is a successful blog post. I've had one one post, for example, where I was kind of exploring the contrarian mindset mm-hmm. and after I wrote this yeah, post, I, I realized something different about uh-huh. me. I was like, you know what, th- this is, I saw myself differently and I think that is the cool part about writing is that it can it can change our worldviews or it changes our, our viewpoints about things and those are the most successful ones. They may not be successful with readers, but yeah, if after you write something, you're changed, you know, that's, that's a pretty significant act. So the act of writing itself 
is most satisfying for you when there's discovery and growth involved for you, the writer, and then as a nice byproduct, your readers get to experience that same growth and discovery with you, which is a very satisfying reading experience as well. Yeah. And there's a depth to that kind of writing. That's a great way of uh, putting it, yeah. So what was it in that one case, excuse me for interrupting. No, no, no. What was it in that one case, do you remember, that you changed your mind about? You know, I was trying to think of a better example, and I, I can't, nothing is coming to mind right now, but I just know that I've had a lot of posts over the years where, where, where they've been pivotal, and I, I think back to them, uh, I realize that I think differently after having written it. I think this is really the value of a blog, is, is that it causes you to reflect on your experiences um, and think about them in a really deep, critical way, and then wrestle with them and, and try to articulate them. And that, that experience it helps you learn from what's happening in your career, it helps you grow uh, intellectually uh, as well as uh, with experience. Otherwise, if you just have experiences and you never process them and think them through, you know, what good is that? You might as well just keep repeating things over and over. So, I mean, writing has a, has a strong value and, and blogging especially. Um, so that's why I really value blogs. Usually at conferences, I, I have kind of pivotal turning points. Um, I remember I, I a had a... kind of turning point to have. Yeah. I remember I came back from Manchester at a conference <laughs> and, uh, I, and, I, and I was like, I'm done with this faceted navigation stuff. I'm like, we gotta focus, we've got to focus on content. It's not the navigation that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I kind of came to this epiphany while at the conference as well as writing about the experience. And, and yeah, so that was a great example. But I'm glad you went into faceted, uh, what did you just call Na- it? Faceted navigation. navigation? Yeah. Because I have pointed many people to that post and that series you did on organization. Oh. Because faceted search is important to understand and a lot of people don't know what it is. And mm. I can simply say, go to Tom's blog. Oh. He explains it beautifully. So I'm glad you did it. Yeah, and, and actually now we've implemented it on our help site. At my work we use Drupal mm-hmm. and through the Acquia kind of service they have faceted search that you can integrate. So we did a whole taxonomy and we, we you know made it so that people do a search for a word and they get all these facets on the left. It's kind of cool. At the same time, it's not really as revolutionary as I had hoped. No, nope. <laughs> maybe not, but still it's a big step ahead yeah. if, if you're not doing anything like that. For anybody listening who might be wondering what we're talking about, where would you direct them to find out your faceted search? Honestly, if you want to learn about faceted search, go look up Peter Morville. Uh, but, but if you want to know about my blog, it's idratherbewriting.com. And um, yeah, that's. I have podcasts on the site as well, video casts. I don't do those as much any as more as much now as I used to. I use I write now a lot more, so there's a lot of content. Search for something, use the search bar. I mean, if you don't see something on the homepage, right? I've usually touched upon the topic at some point in my archives. So, so use the search field. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have a couple other things I'd okay. like to ask you about if you sure. don't mind keep Go talking. Go for it. You write typically substantial posts, thoughtful posts, relatively long posts, and often subheadings breaking them up so that there's a structure, there's an organization, there's a flow. 
how much revising does it take to get you to that final product? It doesn't, uh, to me, it's obvious, I think, that you can't just huh. sit down and have it come out that way. Yeah, well, usually I'll, I'll open up a kind of notepad type view and I'll start asking questions about a topic, generating ideas, and I'll go through that kind of brainstorming process. Several times I may find that I just don't know enough about the topic, so I'll start reading different resources and generating new ideas. And so once I have a big mass of just ideas, I'll take and extract kind of different points and then write like a first draft because then I have something to say about the topic, right? So and how many hours are we in at this point? It depends on the length of the post. I mean, uh, an 800 word post could take anywhere from one hour to five hours. I mean, okay. it depends what the topic is. Start to finish, you mean? Or? It, it depends how much, how much the ideas have already been baked. For example, I, my most recent post is uh, a simple way to write, edit, and publish documentation. And I already had that in my mind. It was like, I already knew what I wanted to say. I cranked that out and like, two rides on the sub on the train whereas this other post um, how can we know something totally unfamiliar to us which is like 3,000 words took me uh, probably a lot longer a lot more train rides because I was trying to figure things out um, show hours give us a number what would you say uh, I would say okay and I have no idea if this if this matches reality but I'd say maybe uh, every 800 words would be probably two to three hours I would say at least including all your polishing it could be more between I don't know three to six so that's yeah. quite an investment of your life <coughs> so you're getting enough value obviously to be worth yeah continuing. yeah yeah I mean uh, so yeah that's the question is, is is what value do you get out of it and so if I do have one of these posts that change how I think about things I do get a lot of value out of it if I'm just regurgitating what I already know I don't get a lot of value out of that so that's why I think for me the posts need to be something where I I, I learn. Uh, you're exploring, you're not yeah, preaching. Yeah, right. exactly. And I think a lot of people approach blogging the wrong way, where they're just trying to figure out what they already know and like document it, which is the wrong way. It's like, it's it's not very fun. It's fun to kind of chart unknown territory, figure out what you think, what things mean. And, and I change my mind all the time on my blog, but um, that's part of the, the fun, fun of it. Well, it makes for rich reading. Thanks. I'm curious, uh, one last thing. Okay. to ask you about. Following you, we sort of follow through uh, your changing focuses in your career, huh. and your current focus often is on API documentation, and I know you have some uh, activity coming up with the STC Intercom magazine. Oh. They're going to give a whole issue to the topic, right? Yeah. So what, m what is API documentation. Um, maybe somebody listening doesn't even know what an API is, and why is it so hot right now? Um, so API documentation is is referring to basically documentation for developers. The APIs and SDKs are are these. Um, what are the acronyms? Do you know? Application programming interfaces, mm -hmm. right, and software development kits. Mm -hmm. But uh, let me try to give an example um, that would be really clear. So. 
I work at a gamification company where we give points, badges, award, allow people to get like missions and rewards and things, try to gamify different contexts. Well, let's say that you perform an action on your site, um, you share something, let's say you tweet something, and I want to give you 10 points for tweeting it. Well, how is it that we can make it so that your site shows that you have 10 more points? You make a call to this API, um, or you make a call to this API. You pick up the phone and you call? <laughs> no, you use... You use web code, um, in this case probably JavaScript, that makes an API call and then it retrieves data from this database where your points are stored. It recognizes that, oh, she's got 10 more points and it, and it delivers that information. So the challenge would be to visualize this and to, I don't know, make the calls efficient. So I really like API documentation. Uh, and, and by API documentation, I include all kinds of other uh, related documentation for developers, such as code samples, uh, introduction, introductory information, reference information. Um, it's it involves learning programming basically. You can't do it well without learning it, and that is a major challenge because uh, programming is complicated. It's I mean, there's a reason programmers are scarce that, that it's, it's kind of a formidable field uh, to enter. Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of eye-opening and it's fun and it's interesting because it's a whole rich landscape. It's a, it's, a, it's a field unto itself, right? Programming, computer language. Um, and so once you start kind of entering that, you see things in, in different ways and your mind starts operating differently. Um, I feel more mathematical, even though I don't have a, really a strong math background, just by learning to code and read, read code. So if somebody wants to break into that, I mean, you just learn a programming language, and that's um, kind of like saying, yeah, you just learn to do backflips. <laughs> I think that technical communicators are learning junkies by nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's true. Safari Books is a great resource to learn, and it's, it's awesome to live in a time where all these information resources are readily available. Not free, but not very expensive either. So, You ready for your final question? Sure. If you were to give your blog a name today, would you still call it I'd <laughs> Rather Be Writing? Well, it's somewhat of a cliché, which is what I initially resisted. But yeah, even though writing has been dismissed as a commodity, really at the end of the day I identify as a writer, uh, even just as a blog writer. Um, and it's kind of speaks to the core of what I like to do, you know, more than anything else, more than you know, creating illustrations or trying to create code samples. I, I like the writing process. I think it's highly worthwhile and it's it's um, something that's worthy of a life pursuit that's going to occupy six to ten hours of unpaid time, right? And you get something out of it because you're you're writing and discovering. Whereas other activities don't really speak to me that way. So, so yeah, I'd call it the same thing. Plus, it's easy to remember. So, <laughs> so writing makes the world a better place. Uh, sure. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, historically, that's true. I would say. Well, I'm going to say Tom Johnson's writing has made my world a better place. So, thank you, Tom. Thanks, Marcia. Mm -hmm.